This is Coach Law coming off the top rope on a more than a club podcast. Welcome to the More Than a Club podcast with Marty Cuprian and Bill Lane. Welcome back to the More Than a Club podcast, season three. We are thrilled to be back in the studio and in person and ready to take on the guests and adventures that have highlighted our first two seasons. Thanks, Bill. We're really grateful to all of our listeners and fans. Cannot have pulled this off the last two years without you, your advice, and your feedback. Keep it coming, and we'll keep it going. We're confident that we have another season of impressive guests lined up for our new season. Back are a handful of college and high school head coaches, two lacrosse-related community organizations making a difference in our area, talented lacrosse players, and some hometown Philly lacrosse history experts. We think that it'll be a superb journey, and we're glad that you're here with us once again. Today, like usual, we will touch on aspects of youth lacrosse for players, parents, and coaches. Joining us in person is a good friend and an excellent coach who has made a significant difference in the life of his players and in the history of Philadelphia lacrosse. We welcome Coach Murphy, head coach right here in Philly from the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome, Coach. It's great to see you. Thanks very much, Bill. Coop, great to be here. Those unfamiliar with Coach Murphy's bona fides, I'll give them to you. Here we go. Long list. Coach Coop, you're going to chime in and help me along the journey. Connecticut Lacrosse Hall of Fame, Duke University defenseman from 1987 to 1991, where he was a three-year starter and captain of the 91 team, assistant at Brown University in 1992, assistant coach at the University of Virginia, 1993 to 97, with two national championship appearances, then head coach at D3 Haverford College here in Philly, where he is tied for the most career wins of any coach, and now the James H. Green head coach at the University of Pennsylvania. At Penn, Coach Murphy is the all-time winningest coach in Penn's men's lacrosse history. 2019 Unanimous Ivy League Coach of the Year, 2019 USILA Division I Coach of the Year. Mike Murphy has coached 20 All-Americans, 50 All-Ivy players, three Ivy League Rookies of the Year, and 12 professional players. The Quakers were also Ivy League regular season championships in 2019, made seven Ivy League tournament appearances since 2011, appeared in two Ivy League tournament championships, and three NCAA championship appearances. Coach, that's an awful lot. What I missed. Don't be humble. Uh, I think that just about covers it. A little embarrassing and makes me feel kind of old. So, Thanks, Coach. Uh, With that, we'll move into our first segment, We like to talk about a youth sports hot topic for parents. Our topic for parents is going to be perspective on the journey of a student athlete. The idea, Coach, that this is a long journey. It might be fun when you're a younger guy and a parent's excited to watch his third grader. But as that journey keeps rolling along and it gets more serious and exciting and fun, but at the high school level, you're signing up for, for some big stuff, the ups, the downs, the injuries, and everything that goes in between, getting benched. And that's all part of an athlete's journey. Yep. So what's your initial thoughts when I present that to you for parents? Yeah, I, I agree, and, and I see that through a couple of, of different lenses, um, just through our guys at Penn and, and as a parent of four kids here in the Philadelphia area and as somebody that's supporting Radnor High School Athletics uh, in our town, um, it's very true, and you, you hear the phrase, you know, little kids, little problems, big kids, big problems. 
it's kind of the same thing with your emotional investment in athletics. You know, uh, it's great. You know, little kid, you know, if you've got a, a second grade child playing soccer and everybody plays the same amount. You don't really know who scores and you're not even sure who wins. And then that evolves uh, up until you're playing varsity lacrosse in high school. And, and there's a natural um, inclination to compare yourselves to the other parents and how much certain kids are playing and, you know, who's, you know, who's scoring the goals and, and all those things. Uh, and, and I just feel like as parents, we have to, to fight that, that trend of comparison and living vicariously through our kids, even if it's only temporarily for an afternoon or evening and just be supportive, you know, uh, and support your child, support the team, um, and just be part of the solution. And, and seeing this from a coach's perspective, if you think about, and, and people talk about, you know, everybody rowing the boat in the same direction. Uh, if you think about people, you know, eight guys on a crew boat or, or women, uh, if you think about the, the players on the team, but also the parents and the coaches all being part of that boat and rowing in, in the same direction, our, our job as parents, my job as a parent of a kid playing a sport um, in high school or middle school is to be supportive of, the, of everybody, um, of the kids who were playing more than my son, of the coaches, of the entire team, you know, doing my part to raise money and to provide food and all that stuff. Uh, you know, and we talk about good teammates on, on a lacrosse team. Well, the parents have to be good teammates as a part of, a, of an organization as well, I think. And it's just, even for me, um, seeing it through different lenses, it's hard, to me, hard for me to sometimes keep that in mind. In our pre-show dinner, we were talking about your son, a football guy, and so as a dad, you can speak just as a dad here, you've lived this adversity journey. Yeah. You want to share a little bit about your son's football journey? Sure, yeah, no doubt. Um, and like I said before, he just loves football. Um, and so we want him to have the best experience possible, you know, and not really keeping score there with his stats or where he's going to college and if he plays football in college and things. We just want him to have a very positive experience. And, and he's had uh, challenges with injuries and stuff. Uh, you know, you combine um, an injury from kind of last summer and then the COVID and, and then a, another injury um, here late summer, early fall of, uh, of this year. Um, you just, you know, you feel for them, uh, and you just try to teach them, you know, how to respond to these things. And, and I, I'm a firm believer and I've had all sorts of ups and uh, ups and downs in my own life. Um, and I say this to our team, like one of our, um, probably most consistent mantras is choose your attitude and respond appropriately to what happens to you. And we'll talk later about how our team got through COVID, but whether it's, you know, uh, Penn losing a game or uh, one of my children getting injured or getting benched or whatever it is, uh, you have to respond to it. And I'm certainly proud of the way um, um, our one son, CJ, has responded to the injuries because he's never once complained, never once felt sorry for himself, never stopped working out. He just kept showing up, you know. Uh, and, you know, for the kids like that, you, you believe that it's going to work out and he's going to have a good, a good you know, result in future. And, and all, that's all you can do is, is just respond and, and, you know, react to the hand you're dealt and, and just keep going forward. Well, he has a good dad. <laughs> Thanks. I love it. Are there any kind of stories like that on your current team at Penn of guys that have had a unique journey or um, an interesting kind of adventurous time while they're there uh, that you think of? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of examples of that. We have a senior um, whose high school coach I was speaking to today who's kind of, you know, just through bad luck has had a number of injuries and he, now he's 
poised to run on our first midfield line and make a huge impact. And, you know, he just stayed the course and, and, and never gave up, never, you know, really complained, never thought about quitting. He just kind of kept going through everything that was presented to him. And now he's coming out the other side and hopefully he's going to help us have, have a, a great season. And, and I would give you another example of a local kid, um, you know, who was having a decent career as a midfielder, uh, and then changed to long stick as a junior, um, and ended up having an unbelievable career for us at Penn. But, you know, even then he had a lot of injuries that he had to fight through, had surgery on his back. And, you know, I'll never forget his family was going to Florida for Thanksgiving and he stayed home to do rehab and to get himself ready for the season. Um, and it's just because he cared so much about the game and, and, and our team and contributing to that. And it's just another example of a kid being dealt kind of a tough hand, responding to it the right way. And he becomes a second team All-American that spring. Yeah, your comment on the first story of the first line midfield, throwing me back to my Calvert Hall years. <laughs> One of my favorite stories I would tell LaSalle guys is my senior year, I'm on the first midfield, we have a really good team, and I get strep throat. And uh, I'm out, and Danny Dolan moves up from the second midfield and kills it, right? We beat Gilman, <laughs> we beat McDonough, and my dad is supportive of the whole team, as you mentioned, and we yeah. go to the games, and I'm on on the sideline in street clothes and I get home and I, I say, dad, you know, this isn't going very well. I'm losing my spot. And he said, your spot. <laughs> since, since when is this your spot? Right. He's like, I'm watching the team and they're doing great. I'm like, without your son. And he's like, correct. So I get better and I go to practice and I work hard. And back in the old days, Coach Thomas from a famous Tom, a lacrosse family in Baltimore, he posted that chart. You just, he didn't talk to you about it. It's just there. There it is. And I'm on the second midfield after like three days of practice. And again, I go to my dad. I, I, I don't have my spot back. I'm, like, I'm going to go talk to him. My dad says, this is a bad idea. And I said, but you told me to advocate for myself and advocate for my playing time. And that's how I'm going to grow up. He said, yeah, but your premise is wrong. The premise is about you and it's not about the team. And, and you guys have Mount St. Joe's coming up. Why would Coach Thomas change all of a sudden what's working? I'm like, without me? He's like, correct, without you. <laughs> so I make my little index card. I'm terrified. He's a really intimidating guy. I go to the history office where he's red inking some poor kid's paper. <laughs> I knock on the door and say, coach, you know, can we talk for a minute? And he looks up and it's just moment of silence says, get out. And I was oh. like, really? And I think I was so stunned. I, I kind of snapped at this legend and I'm like, get out. Like, he's like, I know why you're here and there's nothing to talk about. I said, well, I want to talk about my playing time. He said, correct. And what exactly do you want to say? <laughs> Go work harder, play better in the days that come, especially when you run on the second midfield. And we'll make that switch if you've earned that right. So, of course, Danny Dolan rises to the occasion. We go through the next two weeks winning all of our games. I'm in a better place because my dad's putting me in that place. Like, serve the team, serve the team. People always ask me, well, you know, how did you get your spot back on the first midfield? And I remind them that was not my spot. But what happened was Danny Dolan got mono and I got my spot back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it shows it. you that I spent all this energy and all this time thinking about first midfield and my ego and I didn't put the team first, and I also wasn't growing up. And what got my, the spot back had nothing to do with any of that. Right. Had, had to do with the team moving forward, and other guys get injured, and other guys get hurt. And it just shows that we were really interchangeable, and circumstances right. are what allowed the coach to make those changes. Right, yeah. But great dad story, a bad Bill Leahy story. That's a great story. I love it. It just reminds me of the phrase, we over me. And, you know, you were better off being a we guy than just worrying about yourself on that note card. Just throw that away and go focus on, you know, what you can do for the team. 
So with that, we'll move on to our next section. Uh, we like to kind of speak to coaches here. We call it our X and O insights of the week. We've had so many great coaches talk about so many great positions. We had Brian Silcock talk about the midi, and Brian Doherty was outstanding in goaltending. And, of course, Matt Rambo couldn't stop us when it came to shooting <laughs> or attackman. But, Coach, I thought it would be nice to talk about the long stick midi position and how it's evolved over the years. I've been impressed with your lacrosse history, so maybe you could start a little bit there by talking about the history of the long stick midi position, which was kind of more relevant in the past 30 years than before the 70s, let's say. Sure. So bring us up to speed on the history of the position, because you were a great one at Duke. Yeah, thank you. Uh, it, it is, and I don't know um, how complete my history is. Uh, I really started becoming a student of the game in the in the 80s when I when I began playing in the early 80s um, but I you know I started out playing close defense you know when I was in eighth grade and then uh, moved to long stick in probably 10th grade um, but just was always kind of enamored with the the long stick midfielders and just how they impacted the game uh, there's a guy named Danny Williams uh, who was really uh, a, a wonderful athlete to watch big and fast and and skilled uh, and a guy named Fred Opie uh, who I, I literally was in my backyard. I, you know, he was a um, a left-handed black guy, and I'm this right-handed white guy, just not near as athletic as Fred Opie. But all summer in my backyard, I was shooting the ball behind the back, left-handed, saying I was Fred Opie. Um, and, and so, and, and I've actually had a, a conversation with him like this after the fact, and and told him about that and things. Wow. And and then a guy named John Beezer, um, who was a fantastic long stick midfielder, you know, uh, as good as anybody that's played the position, and. Um, North Carolina played Virginia in the national championship game in 1986. Um, and I went to the game, but I had a VHS copy. I bet I watched that game more than any game I've ever watched to the point where the VHS actually broke. Um, <laughs> you know, and so just, you know, having watched those guys and, and tried to, you know, model my game after bits and pieces of them. Um, you know, there's a lot of debate as to what's the most important position and most valuable position. And, you know, we have the conversation in recruiting, um, you know, and, and there are a lot of arguments to be made for, for goalies and faceoff guys and great attackmen, but it's hard to make an argument that a different position makes more of an impact on more of the game than the long stick. Um, because if you're a really good long stick midi, you actually affect all five phases of the game, which is face-offs, defense, clearing, offense, and riding. And that's the only position that can really do that. Excellent. I know you and Bill were already talking about some of your favorite long stick middies uh, that you've coached. Um, but for me, selfishly, I wanted to ask you about Connor Keating. Uh, just being a fan of Penn, he was a standout for you a couple of years back, and I remember him scoring goals and being <laughs> that guy in all five phases. Yeah, he... Uh, he was remarkable, and he, he's the one I was talking about that switched to, to long stick in, in 10th grade and, and went on, you know, stayed home for Thanksgiving to get himself ready for the season. Um, and I'm very biased because, you know, I recruited him and actually had known his family for a pretty long time and, uh, and things and, and coached him. But, uh, you know, for my money, if, as a stick handling um, player in the middle of the field and in the offensive end, he's the best I've ever seen. Um, and I don't even know who the second best is. I mean, <laughs> what he could do with a stick, and teams literally would start picking him up at about 17 yards because he could score. He's a threat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was a legitimate threat to score when he stepped inside the restraining box. Um, and he would just, like, be in a pile at the face-off wing and one-hand Indian pick it up with a long stick and, 
you know, toe drag it. And <laughs> it was remarkable what he could do. I mean, we would sit there and laugh and on Monday watching film at the, at the plays he would make and stuff. And, you know, he, you know, he was six, four and fast and, and these guys, you know, th this is, they're playing a different game than what I was playing, you right. know, uh, you know, 30 years ago or whatever. So, um, but nowadays there's so many great ones, you know, uh, and they come in different shapes and sizes. Um, you know, like the kid, Jared Connors was a first team all American of Virginia the last couple of years. He was, incredible you know uh just like you know huge and really fast good luck running by him he affected everything at the defensive end because he was so big and instinctive you know he'd be on the backside and could still somehow affect the play and you know in transition and everything else and we have a, we have a kid now that i love um named bj for bj Farrar, um who's the opposite of jared connors he's you know smaller um extremely athletic you know 44 inch vertical jump and i mean like NFL combine type of, of numbers when we test him and stuff. Um, and, and so I think those guys, and he, you know, he similarly is very impactful in all five phases. Um, so it's kind of neat that the, the, they, they don't all look the same, um, but they all have tremendous impacts in, in different ways. Yeah, I've always thought that too. They come in lots of shapes and sizes. I think of a steady as you go kind of LSM guy, mm -hmm. kind of guy Coach Rush would like, just yep. don't get run by, hold the fort. And then a Tyler Narr kind of guy where Every other defenseman on the field, don't turn your back because we have right? no idea what havoc right, he's right? trading all over the field. But you're right about the difference they can make all over the field. And I mean, Tyler Nart, LaSalle guy who went to Georgetown, faced off. I mean, he yeah. brought it all. Yeah. But he, he allowed us to play in, as, as a team in an entirely different way. No doubt. We could go 15-10, you know, play t fast, which I hate. But it was a ton of fun. But you yeah. never knew what he was going to do. And yeah. you never knew what face-off would be a fast break. And then we lost him to a knee injury. And we literally had to redesign the entire team to think one guy could change the entire way that you play. Right. And we went back to much more Leahy style, which was half field, <laughs> yeah. long positions, win a state championship 4-3. Yeah. It still worked. But it wasn't as much fun, and it surely wasn't as crazy. But yeah. one guy, yeah, well, like one guy changed it all. No doubt. And, and they can. And I think that's what good, good coaches do. They adjust to their personnel. You know, uh, so kudos to you for being able to run when the personnel warranted that and then being able to slow it down and, and win with defense and, and win a championship that way too. So, Thanks. We had to lose a couple until I got the message. <laughs> uh, very cool to hear you guys talk about the LSM position, uh, something we hadn't spent a lot of time on previously. So uh, let's move on. We'll move on to our culture building section. Uh, we like to talk <clears throat> to our guests about um, really what's important to them in their organization and, you know, what are the things that they preach? So coach at Penn, we all ch were challenged with COVID, but you really had a double extra challenge I mean, the Ivy league took a different path, a different direction. So as we talked earlier about the journey and the adventure, I'm sure you never thought you'd be signing up for that kind of adventure <laughs> and that journey. So yeah. could you walk us through a little bit about how the Ivy league was different during the COVID sure. challenge? And um, what, what are some of the greatest challenges as being yeah. a coach? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess I never thought of it in these terms, but, you know, we started our year out here um, at Penn about two weeks ago and, and on the 1st of September, and we were off to a fantastic start. I, I'm actually very pleasantly surprised almost at how enthusiastic and how just prepared physically. And our guys are in a really good place. I mean, uh, it's really remarkable given what they've been through. And I think the reason for that is culture, um, you know, which kind of connects those dots. And it was, it was as challenging a year uh, or 15, 16 months as I've ever been through in athletics. 
honestly. Um, just the the announcements that kept coming, the timing of the announcements, the lack of explanation as to why decisions were made. Um, I, I felt so badly for our guys. I found I found myself apologizing to them repeatedly, not for anything that I could have could have prevented. Um, and it was just it was very hard, you know. Uh, every, we got taken off the field first um, on a Thursday. I think it was maybe March 11th or 10th or something like that. And then really felt like victims. And then that night the NBA <laughs> shut it down and, and then the rest of the country shut it down over the next three days or so. So we were all in the same boat um, in March, April, May, and, and June or so of, of 2020. Um, and then, you know, some combination of decisions at Penn and the Ivy League just led to a, a very challenging, you know, year, school year. Um, our guys couldn't really get on our own fields um, for a variety of reasons at Penn because we couldn't coach them or we couldn't do things as a team and so they were trying to do things on their own and so that was cumbersome um and then we get the decision in february the announcement that there's going to be no ivy league season uh so that was a real shot to the stomach um and, you know and, and just the entire thing was uh, a series of disappointments and and uh and bad news but but for some reason um and and it wasn't certainly rosy and, and positive throughout but in the end, when we got through the spring at the end of April, we were in a good spot. You know, uh, I think logistically or just in terms of the facts, all those guys got their year back. Um, <clears throat> some of our rules at Penn are different than they are at some other Ivies um, where, you know, how many semesters you can be there. And so we had a lot more flexibility than some other schools in the league. Um, so we didn't lose as much necessarily from the cancellation as somebody else might have. Um, and, you know, but, you know, we, we basically had a team meeting um, in around mid-February, you know, we're in the middle of COVID, um, the season was basically canceled. Um, so we said, Hey, you know, we're going to make the most of this. Let's take a week off. And so we just gave them a week off. Uh, we came back and we talked about, uh, getting better and having fun. And that's all we focused on for three months. Um, and I would tell you in 30 years of coaching, I've never been a part of a team that improved as much as we did, uh, in the spring semester. Uh, and we had fun, you know, we had dinners when we could, like outside, and we ended up with a banquet at the end of the year, and we had a game against Cabrini, which was terrific for us. Um, so, you know, as much as we were dealt um, that hand or given some lemons, we made lemonade out of it and uh, and made the best of it. We had a good year. It was it was actually fun in the end, despite the testing and, and all the limitations. Uh, so, you know, went through some very challenging things came out on the other side uh, in a good place and ready to uh, to fully attack the 2022 season now because of the culture and because of the leaders and the seniors we had last year and, and the seniors this year. That's great. Yeah, the second half of uh, this discussion for me would just be curiosity around the Native American tribes mm -hmm. uh, represented on the, the shirts. When I was at practice yesterday and a few years ago, I know it's something that you've built into your program. Can you just tell us more about that and how that's paid off? Or, Sure. Yeah, um, it's a really important part of our culture. Um, and I, I think our culture is our most important asset. Um, now, you recruiting is important and there are other things too, but I, I do believe you recruit your culture. Um, and so a, as, as an important ing an ingredient as anything else to our culture is our tribes. Um, and we'd started out with just teams, but then just out of respect to the, the roots of the game and, and things, uh, we now refer to them as tribes. And, you know, we go through some part of it. All the tribes we, names we use are tribes that actually played the game um, and stuff. So we try to 
get a little bit of an educational piece to that, but it's really important um, because it, one, it keeps things pretty competitive and, and interesting um, at times of the year when that's difficult to do, like late fall after we have a fall ball scrimmage and, and things. Um, and so the system is set up so that they get points. Uh, so a freshman is drafted onto the tribe. We'll have our tribal draft next week, actually. Um, so once you're on that tribe, you're on that tribe for life. So the alums are mm -hmm. complaining to me uh, last week about yeah. what's going on with certain tribes and, and all that. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and they care, you know. Uh, and so once you're in the tribe, you're in the tribe for life. And we basically compete, and they get a, there's a point system for three areas. One of them is lacrosse. That's the most heavily weighted and most important. The second one is fitness, so the weightlifting and speed and all the stuff we do um they get points for that and the third piece is academics um and, and so it keeps them accountable for, in everything they do in their life really or at least lacrosse in school on a regular basis but then the other thing it does is just really tightens the bonds between seniors and freshmen because in the tribal thing the seniors are closer to the freshmen in the tribe than they are to their classmates mm -hmm. now ultimately they're going to be tighter with their classmates but it just it tightens the team we call it vertical integration um and just the 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 classes come together and, and they get um, pretty competitive in everything we do, whether it's a three-on-two drill um, or, or a, a, you know, conditioning test or anything else. So um, it's been great and it's, it's a huge part of our culture. Um, and I think it had a little bit to do with getting through last year and, and a big part of, of where we're going right now. It's something that special will pull you through. Something yeah. as challenging as COVID. And no doubt. I was a big culture guy. You went in the locker room, right, John Gordon? And yep. that's one of the best I've heard, Coach. What sticks out to me right away is just honorable, right? It's all honorable. You're honor honoring the history of the game. They're honoring each other as teammates in their tribes. You're honoring right. the tribe, right. teaching you to be a part yeah. of a bigger family. And then you're honoring uh, the, the idea of competition. Right, absolutely. All yeah. that happening just yeah. in Penn Lacrosse. And then they have to go out in the real world right. and think about the lessons they've learned as they head back to in business school and yep. they head out back to their families yeah. and to their communities. Yeah, that, that's our job, honestly. I mean, our, you know, we get paid to win games and, you know, we're evaluated on that. But my job, honestly, is to get every single kid that leaves our program prepared to go out and be as, as successful as they can possibly be and as happy as they can possibly be. And those two things are really important. A lot of pe people, I think, are solely focused on the success part. But if you don't learn how to be happy, you can be really successful and really miserable. And so a lot of these things about being a good teammate and, and all the things we're talking about in terms of modeling, um, it's important that these guys are well adjusted when they leave Penn and can go out and, and be successful and be happy and, and make the world a better place. You know, that's, that's a big part of, of my job is to make sure guys are leaving us ready to do, to do those things. That's why you're one of the good ones, Coach. That's great <laughs> stuff right there. Thanks. Great. Well, that's an awesome start to the show, guys. I'm excited to get into some questions here. What we like to do next is just really a, a firing range of questions that we have for Coach Murphy. Uh, I think Coach Leahy wants to start with uh, your upbringing in lacrosse. Yeah, so tell us a little more about Connecticut and how you got into the sport and into your position, which was a surprise to me, Yeah. and um, like your journey. Yeah, so um, born in North Carolina, uh, didn't know what lacrosse was. Uh, I thought it had a lacrosse ball, but it was a field hockey ball when I was in like fifth <laughs> or sixth grade and didn't know the difference. Good start, good start. Yeah, 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 uh, auspicious. And so I moved to, uh, to Connecticut. And uh, you met some, you know, Andy Towers, who's now, um, you know, coaching in the championship in the PLL this weekend and was one of the first people I met. Uh, wow. And so ended up going to the, the NCAA championship game uh, that year. Uh, and, and that's when I started to fall in love with it, went to a camp, just had a, you know, borrowed one of his sticks, I think, um, and just met a bunch of guys that were pretty into the sport. Um, 
and played in eighth grade and, and then uh, played defense for in eighth grade, ninth grade, then moved to long stick uh, in 10th grade and, and had an uh, unbelievable experience, uh, you know, learning the game and moving to New Canaan, meeting those guys that, uh, you know, that became very, very good friends. Um, we ended up having a pretty good team um, in Connecticut for a couple of years. Uh, and, and one of the beauties is that we just loved it. You know, you know, all we cared about was making varsity and, and then winning a state championship. That was it. There was no like expectation of going to college for this. Or, like, we never talked about that stuff. All we wanted to do was beat our rival and, and you know, win games and win a championship. And then the other stuff just kind of happened to, to come from it. So how did you end up getting recruited to such a phenomenal school yeah. from New Canaan? Yeah, so very uh, ironic. Again, I had uh, a field hockey ball in, in North Carolina that I thought was a lacrosse ball. So I grew up as a UNC fan, uh, and so went back down to UNC uh, for the lacrosse camp um, and ended up getting recruited by Duke a little bit as, as well as some other schools. And, and so um, ended up back down kind of in my home state, uh, going to Duke, uh, you know, through going to the North Carolina uh, camp. And, and so, you know, just felt very fortunate to have that opportunity. And again, you know, it wasn't about getting to college. That stuff just kind of happened. We went to camps to play more lacrosse and went to the Rutgers camp and the West Point camp and and uh, and the UNC camp. And, and that other stuff just kind of you know, almost happened by accident that somebody wanted me to come play lacrosse for their school. I'm like, all right, that sounds sounds like a good deal to me. So. so you travel full circle from North Carolina to the north, back to North Carolina. Along that journey, what men or women were influential to you as a young person growing yeah. in the game of lacrosse? You mentioned Andy Towers, but I'm sure there were lots of others, especially your, maybe your high school coach or yeah, people. No doubt. So lucky. Um, you know, uh, there was about six or eight of us, uh, maybe more, that all played college lacrosse and, and just were really into it. Um, and that passion just developed in, in – and almost this little petri dish of uh, of lacrosse. We would play at the high school all year. You know, we we played other sports too, but um, you know, in the summer and in the winter and just around other sports, we were always playing, and, and we just fed off that passion. Um, and and it was an extremely competitive group of guys. Um, uh, that group of you know eight or ten guys in high school, um, most of which went on to play Division One lacrosse, uh, was just really competitive. Like we would stay after practice and play, switch positions. Like you know, uh, guys that play defense will play offense mm -hmm. and vice versa, um, and we were just constantly competing and constantly playing. Uh, and so those guys really kind of lit this flame of of this love for lacrosse that I have but then uh, my high school coach was was a amazing influence on all of us um, we ended up doing a reading at our wedding and and still stay in touch with him to this day Howard Benedict um, and he was exactly what we needed growing up in a community like New Canaan because he made it very very difficult very difficult um, and as he knew, I think he knew that's exactly what we needed. These little snot-nosed kids running around New Canaan, Connecticut. Um, and he absolutely buried us. 6 a.m. running and running and running. You know, kid had a stick too low, made him go run a mile. Kid spit near his foot, made him go run three miles. Um, he made us run 100 sprints one day. Um, I mean, he buried us. And he knew we could handle it. And we were probably, you know, we ended up winning a state championship as 10th graders, uh, and so then he really laid into us in 11th grade. And, and you know, we, we, you know, he's no way he could have broken us. 
and there's no way just how much we loved the sport not that we were that tough but like we loved it way too much and he probably knew that um he was you know to this point he was unreasonable and he and i have had conversations about it like uh just what he expected us to do and he was just testing us the whole time but it was beautiful it was i couldn't have asked for a better formative uh years for for getting into this game and and you know now doing what i do uh having gone through that um and then you know getting to go to duke and and having the friends that i had there and tony cullen recruited me there and coached me for three years and just the fact that he gave me the opportunity to go to that school i'm forever indebted to him and then to get mike pressler um to be a senior on the team when he came in his first year um was absolutely outstanding i mean he was we would have done anything for him you know, uh, he had us so excited and he made us so much better. Um, so just to have all those guys and then, you know, just out of dumb luck to be able to, to spend six years with, with Dom Starge and five years with Mark Van Arsdale. Like I've been so incredibly fortunate to, to do the things I've done and, and have the friends I have and have worked with the people I've worked with. It's, uh, it's remarkable. I think your high school coach and my high school coach must have been on the phone with each other in mm-hmm. the 80s because yeah. we're the same generation. And yeah. listening to you, I mean, we're the same year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listening to you tell the stories, I just sit there and go, yeah, we did the <laughs> yeah. same thing. Yeah. I remember we lost to Loyola High School on the other side of Towson, and we, we get on the bus, and he says, you leave all your stuff on. And we're like, what? He's like, put, <laughs> put your helmet back on, put your gloves back on. So we're all sitting there on the bus with our little sticks, you know, up <laughs> north and south, yep. driving across Towson. Yep over York Road and we get off the bus and we start taking he said, I, I didn't tell you to take your stuff off go straight to the field we're going to uh, practice and fix everything that we just did wrong our parents are all in the car waiting yep. for us could you imagine that in this oh, day yeah. and age no, and no, we no. practiced yeah. we fixed for until the sun went down everything we had just done wrong it was like a four hour day yes sir across. Yep. and my dad didn't say boo yep. just oh, got yeah. in the car ruined oh. everything family dinner the whole works no cell phone to call home you just come home that's, and that's the key right there I remember early on in 10th grade coming home and, and complaining about something that had happened to practice that day. Um, and I was immediately guilty. Like, you know, uh, there's no way that what the coach had done was wrong. I was wrong. And the way that my parents responded to that, I'm like, well, I guess I'm not going to bring this up here anymore. And, and I think all of my friends probably had similar parents and that we never complained to our parents. And we would just complain amongst ourselves and, and just basically had to bear down and, and deal with it. And, and I think it made us you know, better for it. Yeah, and you know, those kind of men drive the players to each other. No doubt. Like Coach Thomas wasn't going to break us because we were too tight, yeah. even though we were all tight against him. Yes, and no, then- and probably intentionally. Geniuses, right? right? Yeah. Old school, illegal totally. geniuses. <laughs> exactly. As, as you exactly. guys were saying that, I'm thinking, well, these coaches must be pretty proud of you guys, <laughs> yeah. you know? And yeah. and uh, yeah, a lot of great points there. Can you just give us a little bit more on when you finished school at Duke, how you got to the next step of coaching and, and was it UVA, like you mentioned, or, you know, what were the, what happened? Yeah, good, good, good question. Uh, and so, you know, I'm at Duke and everybody's, going on and doing these kind of impressive things, you know, uh, Wall Street or, you know, uh, different companies, uh, the Fortune 500 companies. And I do some investigating into some of what these things are, and none of it seemed to interest me. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. I don't, even, I don't own a suit. I don't want to wear a suit. Like, <laughs> sounds horrible. None of this stuff sounds good to me. So I go in and talk to Coach Pressler, um, and uh, I'm like, you know, what do you think? And uh, he's like, why don't you try to coach? Which I'm like, 
that's a good idea. And then I actually thought about like, this is my coach telling me that I should coach. So who I have a ton of respect for. I'm like, that actually means something. Uh, and so he was awesome. He helped me put together a resume. And so I sent it to, uh, to three schools and, and with the intent of going to some place where I wouldn't have to compete against my alma mater, <laughs> which, you know, I was really, uh, loyal to. Um, so long story short, I get to Brown, um, uh, and work for, for coach Starja and sure enough, like the second game of the year, we're playing Duke in this, in this tournament thing. Uh, so it just kind of happened to work out and it was a very different time. You know, I'm sure most of my classmates were making pretty good money and I, uh, somehow agreed to do this for $3,000, um, with no real fallback plan financially. And, you know, my Volkswagen, my nine-year-old Volkswagen Jetta died and I walked to work for four months and, it was, but it was one of the best years of my life, uh, just learning how to do this and making some friends and stuff. So, um, you know, if I ha if Coach Prestler hadn't come to Duke my senior year and he and he and Dom were pretty tight, I probably don't end up at Brown. You know, uh, I knew Dom a little bit because he'd recruited me to Brown out of high school, but uh, but it just kind of happened to work out. That's you know, feels like the way my life has been, and just kind of dumb luck more than than it is anything else. We've had so many great head coaches, Division One and Division Three, on the show. When they tell their story, like you just told yours, it always seems to be that similar strain, which is they were blessed to have these important coaches in their life, which directed them when they saw coaching skills. And then our world was so much smaller back then. They had yeah. all these different connections, right? Yeah. And so it lands from Pressler to Dom Starja, who one of the best in the game, which takes you to Van Arsdale with yeah. lots of other amazing coaches yeah. along the way in the journey. Yeah which helps mold you and your knowledge yeah, to where completely. you stand today, right? Yeah. Like we stand on the shoulders of giants and you completely. had some real giants. Yeah. Yeah. I feel so lucky. And even the guys that I've worked with, you know, uh, at Penn, you know, uh, right now with Casey Aketa, a guy from Conestoga high school and Mike Abbott and, you know, Dave Page just, just left us and Rob Forrester and Pat Myers and Judd Lattimore and, and all these guys that I've just learned a ton from Jason Artsbell. Uh, and, and like, we'll do a drill or, you know, we have a wall ball routine that, that came from all these guys. So this, Penn Lacrosse is this kind of patchwork of all these people that have been here with me over the last 13 years. And so it's not only the guys like Coach Benedict, my high school coach, and Dom, but even the guys that I work with now that kind of helped mold our program and me into the way I do this and the way I think and, and who I am. Yeah. And, and two of them, Coach Starja and Offensive Coordinator Van Arsdale, are the best in the business. And so can you talk a little bit about what it was like to be around them and with them for all those years? Yeah, and so, again, lucky, um, learning from them. And I didn't even know what I was learning, you know, uh, at the time. I was just kind of, you know, picking it up through osmosis. And, and Pete Lasagna as well, I was lucky to work with him. Um, when I started at Brown, Pete was the other assistant with me and, and Dom and then went to Virginia with Dom and worked with Mark Van. Um, and just the way they evaluated talent. Like, uh, you know, I have a very comfortable way in which I evaluate players and I'm thinking about things I look for and just conversations we would have in the office about different recruits and what we liked and disliked about them. And, and that foundation was laid in those years with, with Mark and Dom. Um, and so it's just like, you know, uh, I probably don't even know 
all the things that I learned from those two guys. Um, not to mention the fact that they're two of my closer friends now and, and talk to them regularly and things. So like, like that stuff is all well and good, but it really is the relationships, you know, uh, know, the guys that, you know, played for us and, you know, guys at Penn or the guys you coached with, like, that's what makes this whole thing worth it. You know, the, the friendships and relationships you have is, is much more important than, you know, whatever offense we're running or, you know, recruits and things like that. You know, it's interesting we ran in not the same circles, but in the same years. Yeah. And by eight degrees of separation, we have an offensive guy who we both think very highly of. I went yeah. to high school with him in college. Yeah. And then you coached with him at Virginia. Yeah. And he was about as good as they come and has gone on to do other things. But I thought we'd talk a little bit about Chris Colbeck. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, you want to share with our listeners, like, who he was and why he was so good? Yeah, he was... Uh He's all, he's still one of the most authentic people I've I've ever met and true to what he believes and, and who he is. Um, so I knew him just because we were the same age and you know we played against you guys and and stuff. Uh, um, you know, uh, and so, but then um, Mark Van left Virginia and I stayed and Chris Colbeck came in to take his job as the offensive coordinator and had always known him knew him when he was at, at Hofstra coaching and and different stops um, but then he and I became close uh, that year um, and he's just you know he's very principled uh, he does th- he thinks that what he thinks is the right way and doesn't deviate from those things and he's just got such a good mind for the game um, and as we were saying before uh, offensively there are you know, multiple aspects to that job, but part of it's developing talent and part of it's kind of organizing the players on the field. And he is fantastic at both of those things, you know, uh, and got a hard edge and, and he's, you know, going to push guys and, and get the most out of them. But I think, you know, people appreciate that down, down the road. And, and, you know, he's a guy that people in our profession that know him and knew him then have as much respect for him as they do for anybody. Assistant coach at a school down in Tennessee. Now those young men have no idea. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> kind um, of across genius. Yeah, I said to Tony Resch often, boy, if the under nineteen head coaching position, which went to Nick Myers, deservedly so, had gone to me, which I applied and enjoyed being an assistant. Tony said, who would you pick? And I said, uh, offensive coordinator, Chris Colbeck or John McAvoy. Yeah, right. And then, Absolutely. And then, Tony, you're coming with me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no doubt. You know, uh, McAvoy, I feel the same way about. Awesome stuff. Um, just uh, kind of staying on offense here, you know, what what do you value most in an offensive player and team offense? What are some of the phrases or principles that, you know, you're teaching and reinforcing every day? Yeah, I mean, if you asked our players, I, I hope they would all respond similarly, um, that our offense is built on space and pace. Uh, I think that's the most important thing. Um, an element of selflessness as well. Uh, so I, I think from a conceptual standpoint that's the most important thing and we have ways in which we teach that and and instill that and I think from a player standpoint it's really about three things Um, and and we kind of divide the sport into three three categories physical technical and tactical Um, and and so I think it's really important for a good offensive player to have all three now, if you're a defenseman, you might be able to get away with just being physically superior, um, even if you're not technically great or have a, a really strong grasp of, of the team defense. Like, we can work around that if you can just not get run by. But to be a great offensive player, uh, especially an attackman, you have to be very skilled technically. Um, you have to be pretty effective physically and be able to you know, put some pressure on the goal. Um, and you really have to be a smart player that sees the field and makes good decisions based on the game situation. So um, uh, so I think all three of those things are important. And, and you, know, you want to put together a good offense. So if you're going to have six players, you can have different 
combinations of physical, technical, and tactical. But to be a really good offense, you have to be able to win some matchups. Uh, you have to be very skilled and be able to score the ball, and you have to be um, a, a collective group of good decision makers. What I liked watching practice yesterday was it wasn't a lot of we're running a play or we're running a set. It was more we just want to see you play in space with pace and maybe you had some kind of scripted motions for the middies to to get out of each other's way or to replace each other and that was fun to watch and it looked like uh, it would have been fun to be in that drill Um, and so were there specific rules even just yesterday and some of your fall ball small-sided three on twos four on threes um, live three on threes or um, principles that you're you're talking about or is it let's just let them play see what we have and coach as we go through those fall sessions yeah it's it's really a combination like if we'll do some unsettled stuff uh, and wednesday's our day for for small sided um so when it's unsettled we'll confine the space so they can't run all over the place uh and 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 then yesterday um, like with the three on threes uh it's part whole teaching um, so we're teaching part of our offense within just the midfield or within just the attack and to do three man games that way. Um, and, and our whole offense, coach Abbott does a, a fantastic job. Um, there are some principles to it, but it's very, uh, free flowing, not very scripted. Um, and so what we really would like to have is a basic agreement as to what formation we're going to start in. And then they use these principles and terms to communicate and interact based on what the defense is doing. And so we start teaching that in the three and three, um, part, and then, you know, we went to four and fours and then tomorrow we'll go to six on six. That was awesome. And, and you could hear the communication too. Yep. That was really fun to watch. Not bad for a D guy coach. I like all that. <laughs> but you know, you're not really a D guy. We were sharing earlier that you have some offensive experience coaching. Yep. You were a D guy by heart and yep. an assistant on both sides of the ball. Right. Um, and even the idea of at the, at the, coaching level switching with your staff when they need to hear a different voice so impressive yeah i like the journey yeah thanks head coach you gotta see all the sides and yeah that was that was good stuff yeah i felt like i was with an offensive guy right there (laughs) (laughs) thanks thanks all right coach besides all the great work on the field you're in such an amazing school with professors world renowned and one of them is a rock star. I love Angela Duckworth and all of her work on grit. I watch her TED Talk. I show it to the boys at LaSalle. I don't think she makes one error in <laughs> speaking. Maybe everybody does that because you practice your TED Talk so much. But in any case, do you know her? Um, I've met her a number of times. Uh, before her book came out, she came in and spoke to our team. Um, I'm just a big believer in, in what she's... Um, discovered and what she teaches and we were talking before about responding to things that come up and and I I believe that her concept of grit um, really fits perfectly with what we do in athletics and and I think athletics reinforces what she's teaching you know and if you think about her definition definition of grit of being that combination of passion and perseverance that's what we do the passion is the love that you have for it and then the perseverance is how you fight through the adversity and so, like, you know, the, she, she, she speaks our language perfectly, and she's done a lot of work with Pete Carroll and the Seahawks and, and things like that. So she, she definitely, um, you know, uh, understands the value of sports in terms of what she's doing and teaching. And, and she was fantastic when she came and spoke to our team uh, three or four years ago, and, and I'm a big fan of hers as well. Yeah, I, mean, I love in her TED Talk when she just lays out that all of her research shows that future success is not based on your IQ, which mm-hmm. is easy to measure. Yep. It's not based on your social economic status, not based on your good looks. Right. 
It simply comes down to those folks who have this still kind of a mystery ability to bounce back, yep. to take on challenge, to see that failure is not set, yep. but that your mind still and brain still has a chance to grow and see that failure as an opportunity to do so. And it's holding on to that each day, into each week, yep. into each month, yep. into each year for a long, gritty yep. time of perseverance. Absolutely. Getting you to your goal eventually, maybe decades yep. later. And Absolutely. along the way, yep. you accept that this is part of the adventure and the journey you signed up for. No doubt. And your setbacks aren't so personal. I mean, yep. it's going to hurt, and you yep. might have to like even get some help along the way. Yeah, Absolutely. But the idea that you look at the long horizon and yep. you stay on task. <laughs> yeah, you're getting me fired up. Uh, Let's uh, call her. Yeah, I will, yeah I'll do it. Um, I couldn't agree more. And, and that's, for me, that's the rewarding part of this. Like, you know, winning whatever games we've won or, you know, whatever the case may be, it's about the process and, and the improvement. Like for me, I would far rather make tangible, recognizable progress on a consistent basis than any other like accolade or accomplishment that you can, you can give me. Um, I just, uh, you know, that stuff is nice and, you know, the alums like it and, and recruits and stuff like it. But I, I was texting my son who's a freshman at Dickinson um, just before I came in and I said, just keep doing it. Like, you know, he's like, uh, I've been going out and shooting every day. And I'm like, you know, that's good. And, you know, he's lifting and I'm like, keep doing that stuff because right when you think it's not working, like, that's when it's going to start to really kick in and, and you're going to start seeing even more significant results from your work, but you got to stick with it over time. Um, and most people just don't do that, whether it's a diet or any other sort of behavior modification, it's hard that the perseverance is hard. Um, and that's why, you know, it's hard to be successful. But, uh, you know, uh, I think if people embrace that, the, they don't even, they're not even pursuing success. The, and we talk about, what we call championship habits that make success inevitable. And that's what we're trying to build a culture that's based on that. Yeah. Just to bring that section to an end, we have a, the grit scale online. So we have the guys oh, at LaSalle do it. Really? And you, you get scored a zero to yeah. a five. And yeah. one guy's like, I got a five. I'm like, you, you're so live. There's no way. <laughs> right? But when you sit down as a guidance counselor and talk to the guys who scored in the low fours, you know, almost all of them had a hard story. Really? Mm -hmm. Almost all of them were coming from a, a challenging situation in their life where they had a learning disability or maybe they were an athlete with an injury or maybe really? you know, there was something difficult at home. Yeah. And that's where they learned it. Yep. The guys who had twos and under were kind of like bubble wrap kids. Right. And they're like, boo oh boy, hold that's on why, tight, yeah. folks. You know, that's not the way it rolls. Yeah, I mean, you, just, you hope that your kids get the opportunity to fight through something at some point, whether it's your kids at home, your kids in your team, because that's the only way you really make progress and, and are prepared for, for what comes down, down the road later. That's a good quote for, for all the young parents out there to hear. Um, the next thing I wanted to ask you about was just, you know, the importance to you of coaching at Penn, um, obviously a world-class institution, I think one of the oldest universities in the country and, you know, really the significance of Franklin Field and the Palestra and some of the facilities you get to work and coach at. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's humbling, honestly, to, to use kind of a cliche, but it really is. I mean, I still walk in Franklin Field after, you know, 15 years there total, 13 as the head coach. And I look around, I'm like, wow, this is pretty cool. Yeah, you just totally. think about Vince Lombardi and Usain Bolt and Chuck Bednarik and, you know, all the Army-Navy games. And, like, I mean, it is a living piece of athletic history in the United States of America. It's Ben Franklin Field, for God's sakes, you know. Uh, like, how cool is that? You know, uh, it's just, it's 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 unbelievable to, to be able to do what I get paid to coach lacrosse 
in a place like that. And, you know, we are one of the seven or eight oldest programs in the country. It's the fourth oldest school in the country. You got Franklin Field and the Palestra and, and just downtown Philadelphia. It's a historic place. So it's so cool. And, and the oldest sport in the country uh, with, with lacrosse. So, um, you know, very much appreciate that. And so it's, you know, it's a fine line. We have social media and all this stuff and we're trying to be cutting edge with our technology and, and attract these recruits and, you know, all the rest of it. But at the end of the day, like, you know, a, a huge part of who we are as a program is built on on that tradition and that history uh, of the program and the institution. Yeah, it's awesome. I, I I am always geeked up just to be on campus, like I told you, and you've seen yeah. me um, roaming around. But when we we brought our younger teams for college game days there, yeah, and hooked up with my friend Jake Silverman, who worked yeah. in the athletic department, and. I felt like I was a tour guide for Penn, and I never felt so much pride uh, Thank you. doing a job I wasn't getting paid for, but um, we were lucky enough to take our young kids, and the first year we saw Duke, we saw you play Duke, and uh, I think yeah. uh, Gutterding must have been a senior there. Yeah. The next year, it was either Penn State or Yale, so we went three years in a row wow. and saw three of the most epic games. Yeah of those seasons and um, you know showed kids like the best lacrosse field trip they've ever been on. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, connected to Philadelphia was just any thoughts on the high school scene over the years or programs or coaches or players that stand out and then kind of tying that to last spring and your son's Radnor team making that state championship yeah. run and any other thoughts on like local high school across? Cool. Yeah. You know, um, I'm a product of, product of my experiences and moved to Philadelphia um, a month or two after we got married in, in 2000. Um, but, I, you know, to me, Philadelphia is, you know, arguably the best area in the country for lacrosse at all levels from from kindergarten through uh, through college. But I think at the high school level, um, it really does represent kind of where our sport is and how far it's come. You know, over the last you know thirty or forty years, um, there's just so many more good teams now. You know, for you know Coach Leahy to start LaSalle yeah. from scratch and to build it into what it became and what it is now with with Coach Forrester is is so cool. You know, and then you've got these old established programs from the Interac and you know Lower Marion that what yeah. back in the day was and, top of the heap with yeah, yeah Coach Lenahan. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, I absolutely love the history of that. Coach Lenahan is as good a man as you're going to meet, you know. Uh, and then, you know, all the other guys in, in, in the area now that just do an unbelievable job of the sport, but really helping these young kids, you know, get through and get ready for college and life and just great role models. You know, uh, you know, like I can give you a million examples, uh, across. Chris um, Hupfeld gave us about 450,000 <laughs> with the pictures yeah. that he brought right? to the podcast. Show. <laughs> and he's one of those guys, you know, he's Absolutely. part of the fabric of this place. He's not, a, he didn't coach a team, but there's so many just wonderful guys that are ambassadors of our sport and our sport gets a bad rap. Uh, and I'm probably more sensitive to it than others being kind of connected to Duke and Virginia and what's happened at those places. And we're constantly living, living that down uh, every day by the way we treat people and the way we conduct ourselves and, and just the people in this area, especially on the men's side, but on the women's side too. My, my wife coached at Conestoga for five or six years, probably 
better record, better resume than I've got. And she won a national championship as a player. So I'm kind of living in the shadows of my own house a little bit. Uh, um, but on the men's side, especially all the people and, and how far the game has come. It's just, you know, I feel fortunate to be in this area uh, as a as a small part of this sport. As an insider with Radner and their state championship run last year, any any highlights uh, as a parent, as a fan yeah. uh, that you got to enjoy? Um, I, I was so happy, uh, you know, as a and uh, I've been pretty fortunate, you know, uh, to be vicariously living through some different experiences, you know, uh, Duke basketball when they started their run my senior year and, and a bunch of other things that I've kind of enjoyed. Um, but having, you know, to be fortunate enough to win a state championship in high school myself uh, at New Canaan and, and Radnor, a uh, public school, kind of similar wow. uh, approach, um, knowing what that did for me and, you know, talking about the experience I had just playing for my coach, but the fact that we played for him and ended up winning state championships, that, that's defining, you know, uh, not that I would be that different if we lost championships, but especially your senior year and for one of my sons is a senior and one's a junior, um, that affects you, you know, uh, I really believe that that can have a, a significant uh, impact on who you become. Uh, and just so, and, and very ironic story. Um, so I had a good friend in high school, one of the guys that, that, you know, was competitive and, and was in that group of, of 10 that played all the time. His name was Clark Pierce. He moved in down the street from me in 1985. Um, and then in 2000, I think 16, he moved in down the street from me in Radnor. Again, and from so, California, from so, California. Yeah. yeah. And so his older son um, went to Delaware and his younger son um, was a senior at Radnor with my son and very good friends. They were you know, a group of four um, that were really tight. And, and his son and my son were two of them, just like he and I were in a very tight group of four um, 35 years ago that still stay in touch. Uh, and so I had a sense if they were able to pull this off, what it would have felt like for them. Um, and it was it was awesome, you know, uh, and they lose to LaSalle the first game of the year. Um, and then they just go on a tear. And they didn't get to play some some teams that they would normally play because of COVID and things. But uh, and going to the state championship game and watching them, like I get goosebumps thinking about it. Like they were coming out of like this other field and you could just hear them, uh, you know, screaming and yelling. And, and they were kind of feeling it. I'm like, oh, they're either out over their skis a little too much <laughs> and they're going to come out on the wrong end of this. Uh, and then I watched them in warm-ups and they were, they were ready to go. And, uh, and they ended up winning it and the celebration and, and the girls team won as well, which was really cool. And they were really tight. And so, um, uh, you know, looking back to 1987, knowing what that felt like for us and knowing that what that would do for, for our kids and the community and their friendships and, and how they would look back on their time at Radnor. I was just, uh, I was very happy for, for those kids and, and for John Beezer especially. So, um, he just does an unbelievable job of, everything that goes into coaching, uh, you know, high school lacrosse, you know, he's invested in the community. He really takes care of every single kid, takes an interest in them, helps them get to college. Uh, and, and so for him to accomplish that and for his son and my son who are, you know, very tight along with the Pierce kid, um, it was awesome. I couldn't have asked for anything more. You know, uh, I'm not sure we're giving up our pen season, uh, yeah. <laughs> to be able to, to be a part of that. Cause I was watching more Sure. high school lacrosse yeah. than I normally do. Um, cause I think we would have been pretty good at Penn and, you know, uh, and things, but, um, I, I couldn't have been more excited for everybody involved, uh, that experienced that in Radnor. Is it true or false that some of the parents are still partying? From, uh, tr probably heard, true. Uh, <laughs> definitely true. I heard some good stories of the, the celebrations. Um, yeah, it was amazing. Uh, police escort right into, you know, some parties and graduation and, and the whole thing was, uh, was was crazy and, and uh, enthusiastic. 
Well, we're going to have Coach Bijer on in episodes yet to come, so we'll Perfect. get to hear Perfect. from another perspective. Yeah, I heard uh, you have to ask him about his uh, late night out in Wayne after the game. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what happens in Radnor stays in Radnor. Yeah, that's true. Out. He's a night owl, though, so. Coach, one last question uh, that, I, that I'm intrigued by is the IMCLA and your role in it over mm -hmm. the past. It seems like, you know, you've had a leadership role and it's something Coach Lawrence wanted me to ask you of, you know, why is that something that's so important to you and what do you do? In yeah, that role? Um, uh, I appreciate you asking the question. Uh, it's the Intercollegiate Men's Lacrosse Coaches Association. So it's our coaches association. Um, and it was started about 15 or 16 years ago by Richie Mead, who was a coach at the Naval Academy at the time. Uh, and his basic premise was coaching, helping, helping coaches. And so I just feel so fortunate uh, to, to literally, I get paid um, to do what I do for a living. So I just feel like I owe people. I owe the sport. Uh, I owe the profession. Um, and so every ch chance I get to give back or to pay it forward to younger people, uh, I will do that every single time. Um, and so we're pretty involved in this Young Quakers thing we started at Penn, giving back to the sport, and for me to be able to give back to the IMLCA as the vice president, um, and just trying to make the profession better, make it more professional, make our sport better, um, and you know try to help the younger coaches coming up through. It's hard, man. It's This job is hard, uh, and everybody wants to be a head coach, but there's a three-to-one ratio of assistance to head coaches, so it just mathematically... It's not going to work out for everybody uh, and just to help guys, you know, move forward and, and progress kind of how we do things and the professionalism with, with which we conduct ourselves is, is important to me. So good cause coach. So we'll bring this wonderful show to an end with our favorite rapid fire homework session. Let's go. So you ready to do this coach? I am ready. I'm going to present a topic. You present the homework. We'll shoot right through them. And then I'll ask what you're reading or listening to these days. Beautiful. So here we go. What homework do you have for players who are listening? Um, for players, it's simple. Uh, and I've challenged our team to this as well as my own children. Um, get better every day and, and try not to take a single day off. Um, even if it's five minutes of film, if you could just commit yourself to that improvement process that we discussed before and do something, um, the, the obvious is wall ball and, and weightlifting and speed training. Um, but there are a lot of other ways to do it too, that, that kids can learn from, from their coaches and their parents. Homework for parents who are listening. I would say kind of going back to what we discussed back in the beginning, just be supportive, you know, be supportive of your kids, but make sure they understand uh, and they have the perspective of this is a team game. That's what makes it great. That's why companies hire team athletes from sports like lacrosse because they understand how to put the team uh, ahead of themselves. We have a, a sign in our locker room that says team greater than teammate, greater than self. And so if you understand that if you put your teammates first um, or before you and you put the team before your teammates, and that's a very important distinction, a lot of guys will be really nice to their friends and tell them it's okay that they, you know, missed a ground ball or, you know, cheated on a test, but it's not, you know, it might make you nicer, but you need to, to hold them accountable to, to put the team first. Um, and so I think, you know, understanding that is, is a really important part of this from, from a parental perspective. And homework for coaches who might be listening. Yeah. And it's something else we touched on before. Um, you know, they call them, you know, uh, stretch experiences or growth opportunities, um, coach something you're not comfortable coaching. 
uh, if you do that, like, you know, when I was coaching the offense um, in 2002 at Penn um, or coaching a group that you're not comfortable coaching, coaching girls instead of boys or young kids instead of high school kids or whatever the case may be, um, you, you'll find your voice. Uh, and then you'll develop the expertise and, and then it'll kind of come together. Uh, and I think until you get some of those kind of stretched experiences, you're going to be in a, in a bit of a rut. And so any coach that wants to improve himself, uh, I think kind of get outside your comfort zone and, and coach something that you're not uh, super comfortable doing right now. And lastly, what are you reading or listening to these days? Um, uh, you know, I've got a bit of a compulsive problem. Uh, uh, jumping around, so I'm reading a couple books at the same time uh, at this point. Um, uh, uh, one of them is Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow by Daniel Kahneman, which I've been trying to read for uh, a while now. Um, and then the other one is uh, Jerome Allen's book, um, which is really, really awesome. Uh, he and I became pretty good friends when he was at Penn. Uh, and then he had, you know, a couple of things he went through and he talks about him in the book with a great deal of, uh, of transparency. So, uh, very much enjoying that on kind of the athletic side. And, and then the Daniel Kahneman book is very intriguing to me, uh, just in terms of the way our mind works and things like that. And, um, not as much of a podcast guy, um, but I listen to a lot of them like, you know, your guys podcast and Jamie Monroe's podcast, but then some other ones, um, there's a guy named novel Ravikant. Uh, that I think is extremely uh, um, intelligent, but very succinct in, in what he says. So you know, kind of all over the place. And I've always believed in not just reading coaches' books and not just, you know, kind of getting in that same rut, try to broaden, you know, try to be a mile wide and a mile deep, I guess. I like it. Really great, Coach. Thanks so, for sharing. Sure. Wow, what an awesome episode. Uh, so that's a wrap for episode one of season three from our next offices here in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania. We're excited to get to the fields with our next boys and girls club teams. We'll be kicking off our fall season this coming Sunday with an event we call Nike Training Day. We're going to keep the episodes coming this fall. Our goal is to record a show each week and put them out every two weeks. For our producer, Justin, host Bill Leahy, and our wonderful guest, Mike Murphy, we're signing off from Conshohocken. Thanks for listening. Crushed it, dude. <laughs> Thanks. That was awesome, yeah.